Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, James Carter, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, alongside my delightful co-host, Alexandra Buckenheerless, also Portfolio Manager at Waverton. 2024 is election year, not just for the UK, but our noisy neighbours, the US, also have elections fast approaching. In fact, at least 40 countries have leadership elections this year, representing 3.2 billion people and almost half the world's GDP. But today, we're going to focus on the most pivotal of all, the race to become the next leader of the free world, the US. Okay, okay, that 3.2 billion number may also include Russia, which I'm not sure we can honestly count as a free and fair election. I do think, James, it might be unnecessary for us to have a whole podcast episode debating who would be the winner of that election. But back to the US, to tackle this sizable topic, there are few better than our very own commander-in-chief and good friend of the podcast, Bill Dinning, Waverton's CIO. Bill is a fountain of inside knowledge when it comes to anything US politics largely stemming from his time at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where he obtained a master's degree in American government. Bill, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, less than a year away, the 2024 U.S. presidential election is set against a backdrop of significant challenges that will no doubt shape the outcome. The country grapples with a perilous fiscal situation, with ballooning national debt and the cost associated with servicing that debt skyrocketing. Social and political divisions remain stark, with topics such as migration, abortion, and the cost of living crisis driving the debate. And of course, the ongoing support of both Ukraine and now Israel are being hotly debated in the upper and lower chambers. The outcome of this election will have far-reaching implications for both domestic and international affairs. The policies enacted by the next administration will shape the economic trajectory of the US, influencing trade, investment, global conflict, and ripple through financial markets. So without further delay, let's jump across the pond and to kick us off, give us a sense of the lay of the land bill. What are the bookmakers telling us? How accurate are predictions at this stage? And is there anything that can realistically stop Biden and Trump obtaining the Democratic and Republican Party nominations? Well, I think, James, the bookmakers are suggesting that Trump's like the favorite, but obviously we have to be a bit careful with that because bookmakers set their book based on what money has been going on to the different candidates. So Ladbrokes, for example, have got Trump at six to five and Biden at two to one. So according to Ladbrokes, Trump is a strong favorite, but that may not be very accurate. I would prefer to look at some of the things that you can look at in terms of uh, what US voters are doing. There's a website called predictit.org, and that has a spread bet on the presidential election So you pay a certain number of cents and the winner pays out a dollar. So Trump is at 42 cents on that and Biden's at 40 cents. So in our parlance, they'd both be about six to four. And I think that's probably more realistic than what Labrooks are doing. I suspect a lot of people are having a punt that Trump will come back. At the moment, I'd say Trump is probably the marginal favorite, but at this point, it's a toss up. And your question is a very fair one. The election's on November the 5th. An awful lot can happen between now and then. So I think we should probably use that as a sort of guide. It's probably a realistic guide, but not something that we should be hanging our hats on. An awful lot can happen in the next 11 months or so. And no one's going to come from left field and upend this? Well, I think the route to the nomination for both Biden and Trump looks pretty unstoppable. So Biden, as the sitting president, has managed to avoid having any serious challenges. Robert Kennedy Jr. was for a time running as a potential Democrat candidate, but he's now going to run as an independent. 
hopefully we'll come back to him later in the podcast because I think what's happening with the independent candidates this year could be quite influential. As for Trump, he is the overwhelming favorite to win the Republican nomination. That's partly because the base, the Republican base, is still more pro-Trump than anybody else. There hasn't really been a, a shining new candidate. Nikki Haley is this sort of second favorite, but I think something's going to have to happen to Trump, I think, for him to lose the nomination. The other thing to bear in mind is that both nominations were pretty much sewn up in early March. Something like two-thirds of the Republican delegates will be picked by then, and something similar for the Democrats. But in early March, we'll know who the two nominees are for the respective parties. So I think at this point, it looks unlikely that anybody will stop Biden at Trump. However, Super Tuesday, the big primary day, is on the 5th of March. That is eight months before the election. There's actually quite a lot that could happen between March and that date. So if something goes wrong for Biden or Trump, I would suggest it would happen after they look like they've sewn up the nomination, but they actually don't get the nomination until the respective party conventions. The uh, Republican convention is in the middle of July, July 15th, and the Democrat convention is in August, August 19th. So only then do we have the two candidates. So there is a possibility between March and July or March and August that something could change. That's not unprecedented. It's not impossible to see something changing, partly because of Trump's legal problems and partly because of Biden's potential weaknesses around his age and apparent vulnerability. Well, perhaps we'll park those legal challenges for the time being and come back to them. But on the topic of Biden, in a recent interview, he stated that he was not sure he would seek re-election if Trump was not running. Why has there been no strong alternative candidate step up? And at 77, Trump is no spring chicken, but at 81 years of age and already the oldest standing US president in history, is Biden really up to this, Bill? Well, I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. And I think it's a question that's been quite openly asked. And I think some of Biden's poor polling numbers probably reflect a general concern about that. As far as the Democrat Party's concerned, no, there isn't a sort of obvious alternative. The person in the outsider would be the California governor, Gavin Newsom, but he doesn't really have much of a national platform yet. And the problem was the party sort of coalesced around Biden in 2020, and he won the election. And he's done a lot in terms of passage of legislation that's actually probably helped keep the economy going. So actually, Without the age issue, I don't think anybody would be doubting that he's perfectly capable and eligible to be running for a second term. It's interesting that about the polling numbers, I'm sure the age plays into it a bit. But when you look at the economic factors at face value, you know, low rates of unemployment, the economy growing, inflation down considerably from where it was six months, a year ago, it is interesting that the approval ratings are so low when on paper, there should be a lot of positives that Biden and his team are able to spin, but that doesn't seem to be landing with the electorate. I think that's true. And I, but I think presidential approval ratings are basically just another form of sort of consumer confidence measures. And actually consumer confidence measures, so the well-known ones from the conference board or from the University of Michigan, those are actually pretty weak and have been. They were very weak in 2022 when inflation was surging and when interest rates were starting to go up, and they've remained weak and I think the approval ratings being relatively low is just confirming what those numbers are saying. So despite everything you say being absolutely true, and the unemployment rate in particular is normally something when it's this low, it's historically very low, normally that would be a boost. But I think the concerns about 
inflation, the concerns about lots of other things that have dampened consumer confidence. And I think the approval ratings for Biden being relatively low are consistent with that. So although the economy's done fine this year and the stock market's done pretty well, it's one of those situations where it, it sort of doesn't feel like everything's okay. And I think that's probably why the approval ratings are as low as they are. And you mentioned earlier about the legal battles that Trump is facing and the fact that could be one of the things that means this time next year, we're not talking about necessarily a Trump-Biden race having just gone down. What do you think the impact of those legal troubles are? My impression is that a lot of the things that have been taken up against Trump and indeed Biden more recently in terms of taken to court actually in some ways kind of creates an element of martyrdom and just rallies the troops around each of them more fervently than they were before. So I don't know if it in some ways slightly backfires. Yes, I think that certainly with Trump's numbers, there's been no evidence that the Republican electorate who are going to vote in the primaries has gone off him. But he's facing four trials in New York, Florida, Washington, D.C., and in Georgia. He's had 91 felony charges filed against him in those four cases. The Georgia one in particular, which is basically about an attempt to sort of overturn the uh, election result in Georgia, which is one of the critical swing states last time, that one in particular could be a problem for him, in my opinion. So I think those legal problems could be disruptive still to the narrative that says that he wraps up the nomination in early March and therefore he gets nominated at the convention. That's one of the things that could disturb that narrative between March and July. Uh, Biden's not out of the woods completely either. It's quite possible that there will be an attempt to impeach him. That wouldn't go anywhere, but it would create some noise. And also his son, Hunter, has legal problems of his own worrying in the background. So I think the focus should be on Trump's legal problems. And as I said, the one in Georgia in particular could be problematic for him. So where will this election be won or lost? And why are swing states such as Nevada, Georgia and Michigan so important? Perhaps here you can reference to the rather unique electoral college system. Well, exactly as you say, in the last election in 2020, it was actually decided by 42,922 votes in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. If they'd gone the other way, Trump would have won. So you're right, the states where there's a very close race between the two candidates are the ones that will really determine it. States like California or New York are going to be won by Democrats. A state like Texas is going to be won by Republicans. But as you said, you've got Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Those really are the critical states. Now, what happened in 2020 was that Biden was able to flip five of those states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that had previously been won by Trump over Hillary Clinton. Those are the ones, again, that are going to be the critical ones to win the Electoral College. So effectively, you've got 50 statewide elections that constitute the national election because the elections decided, as you said, in the Electoral College, where the number of delegates in each state is determined by the number of members of the House of Representatives and senators. So every state's got two senators, and the number of members of the House of Representatives depends on the population. So yes, those are, again, going to be the critical states. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this time around is that in some of those states, the independent candidates who look like they might be running, if they get on the ballot in those states, could also have a significant impact. One of the things that's a little bit of a wrinkle in 2024 is that there are at least three active independent candidates who could draw enough votes in some of those states to actually have an impact. And that makes 2024 a little bit different. There's quite often an independent running who can have an influence. 
But in 2024, we could have quite a significant influence from the independents that look like they're going to be running. And you mentioned Kennedy, Bill, earlier. Who are the others that we should be looking out for? Yeah, so Robert Kennedy Jr. is running nationally. He's polling somewhere in the mid-teens, so somewhere around 14 15%, depending on which poll you're looking at. That's relatively high for an independent candidate. And he seems to have some sort of national appeal. I doubt he's going to win any states, but he could draw votes. If he can get on the ballot in the majority of states, which is not a given because it's hard to do, then he will have an impact. I think he's going to take more votes from Trump than Biden, but he's going to take some votes from both. But I think the Trump team is more worried about RFK Jr. than the Democrats are. I think a lot of traditional Democrats regard him as a bit of a traitor, given the family connection to the Democrat Party from his father and his uncle in particular. I think a lot of Democrats are somewhat averse. The other two that are running are quite interesting. I think one is Jill Stein, who's a Green Party candidate. In 2016, she did have an impact on the election. She won more votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin than Trump won those states by. In other words, hypothetically, if she hadn't been running and uh, her votes had gone to Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton would have won the election in 2016. So again, regionally, she could have an impact. And then the other candidate who's running, Cornell West, who's an academic, he in particular could have an impact in Michigan. Cornell West is going hard at Biden on his approach to the awful news coming out of Gaza, the awful attack on Israel, and then Israel's attempted retribution for that. He is taking an anti-Biden administration line on that, which is going to play well potentially with some of the Arab American population and Michigan, uh, particularly in Detroit, Dearborn, have large Arab American populations. He could have an impact in Michigan, which is obviously one of those swing states. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but I actually think that does slightly cloud the situation. So I think Cornell West and Jill Stein are a problem for the Democrats. JFK is more of a problem for Trump. The net effect is it's a problem for both candidates. And before we segue towards likely manifesto and campaign issues, I'm fascinated by the influence of money on elections. Does money buy elections in the US? I mean, I recall it not working well for Michael Bloomberg's campaign in 2020, nor does it seem to be going too well for DeSantis this time around, despite outspending Biden and Trump. And the sums being spent by candidates in every election, but particularly this one, when I look at the numbers, is a huge contrast to what we're used to hearing in the UK, which of course has strict rules governing this. So how consequential, Bill, is that fundraising? Well, they clearly have to raise a lot of money because they've got a national campaign to run and they've got to employ people to run that campaign and they've got to do a lot of advertising. I think, you know, American elections are costly, but both the Democrat and Republican parties are well supported. I don't think money's going to sway this election. As you say, they're both parties are going to spend a lot of money. I don't think that's necessarily going to be a factor this time around because we kind of know ahead of time where those critical states are, obviously, those critical swing states are going to see vast amounts of money being spent. So I personally don't think that money is going to necessarily sway on this occasion. And turning to manifestos and campaigns, and particularly how they're going to try and sway those key states, what do you think are the key issues that are going to come out? And there's so many, particularly geopolitical issues, but also domestic that are dominating headlines now. What do you think is going to be the key factors that are potentially going to swing things for those states? Obviously, what's happening in the economy is going to matter. 
as we discussed, the consumer confidence numbers are not great. And that would suggest that if the economy weakens in 2024, then that could be a bigger problem for Biden. So even though, you know, he spent a lot of political capital in passing legislation that produced big spending bills, that isn't showing up in consumers, or in this case, the voters feeling good about the economy. So the economy obviously will matter. But actually, I think in 2024, one of the biggest issues is going to be abortion and abortion rights. The Supreme Court last summer overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that effectively legalized abortion nationally. And the overturning of it last year pushed abortion laws back to the states. And quite a lot of states have already taken a very restrictive line on abortion rights. There's been a case in Texas where the Supreme Court has basically refused uh, the right of a, a woman to have an abortion, so she'll have to go out of state. That is a big issue. I think the abortion rights is going to motivate Democrats to come out and vote. I think a lot of swing voters, one of the factors that will determine how they vote is going to be abortion rights. What the Supreme Court did in overturning Roe v. Wade, I think, is unpopular. And I think that it will have an impact, particularly on the presidential election because it's the president who appoints Supreme Court justices. So if you want to have the Supreme Court address the abortion rights issue again, it would have to be under a Democrat president managing to appoint Supreme Court justices to tilt the balance on the court back in favor of abortion rights. That is a tailwind for the Democrats and particularly for Biden next year. And it's one of the reasons why I'm actually slightly skeptical about the idea that Trump should be the favorite. I'm not sure he should be the favorite. It's interesting to see the loyalty of the evangelical vote for Trump based on his Supreme Court appointments. It's not probably what you'd have predicted, knowing how Trump conducts himself as an individual, but also as president. He's managed to completely maintain that vote based on his actions at the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. I think the issue around Supreme Court cases is going to have an influence, as you say, at the presidential ticket level. A third of the Senate is up for the election and all of the House of Representatives as well. Both of the Senate currently is 51-49 a majority for the Democrats. The House is 222 to 212 majority for the Republicans. The way that the politics is shaping up, it's quite possible that the Democrats will struggle to hold the Senate. The seats that are up for election are not favorable to them. And they're going to do very, very well to retain their majority in the Senate. My suspicion is that the Republicans will actually probably turn the Senate. But the House could also flip. The House could go from a Republican to Democrat, partly because of some rule changes. For example, in New York, the way that the redistricting has gone is going to increase the probability that we'll get more Democrats elected from New York. And that will have an impact on the House when you've got such a small majority at the moment. So it's going to be close, but I actually think there's a good probability that we end up with a split between potentially the Democrats win the White House, but the Republicans win the Senate. So you'll have what the Americans call gridlock, i.e. not having one party in control of all three of those branches of government. That may be what the current situation is going to lead to. And Bill, how does that play out in markets if there is a division and potential gridlock? How have markets historically reacted to that sort of situation? Uh, historically, the perception is that the markets prefer gridlock on the basis that means that the government is less likely to be interfering in either in a good way or a bad way. They'd rather that there wasn't much interference. So traditionally, that situation where not one party controls all three branches is regarded more favorably. Although I think statistically, I'm not sure how meaningful that is, but I think that would be the perception. 
and think about markets more generally, which potential president do equity markets favour, do you think? Is there a clear preference? You know, How do you see things playing out if we go down the Biden or Trump route, if indeed they are the candidates on the day? I'm not sure that there's necessarily been a huge impact. I think the way that the Biden administration went about the spending bills when they did have majorities in the House and the Senate has produced a favourable outcome, particularly in certain parts of the US economy, the industrial sector in particular, infrastructure, renewable energy. I think that's been a positive. That happened, as I said, when the Democrats controlled House and Senate. If we do get a divided government again, then I think it's a bit more of a nuance in terms of what the markets might think. The markets liked the notion of Trump in 2016. The market started going up after he was elected, well before he was inaugurated. This time around, though, it might be a bit different. You know, the Trump of 2024 is a very different candidate from the Trump of 2016, in my opinion. In 2016, he was the outsider. He was running against a very well-known commodity in Hillary Clinton, whose husband was elected as president in 1992. So you had a quarter century of the country having an opinion about Hillary Clinton and indeed Bill Clinton, and quite a lot of them had an unfavorable opinion. And Trump was the protest vote, much in the way that in the same year, we obviously had the Brexit referendum, which was an opportunity for a protest vote, which was duly delivered. 2024, Trump is more of a known quantity, and his focus has not been on the economy, apart from his slogan of make America great again. His focus has been very much almost on sort of political retribution against uh, all his perceived enemies who defrauded him from winning the election in 2020. So his narrative is very different in 2024. I'm not sure that the market would be particularly enamored of Trump being president. He might well be an even bigger wild card than he was in 2016. And what would that mean, Bill, for NATO and for Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, the Ukraine situation is interesting, isn't it? Because there's not a huge amount of popular support for the support that the American administration has provided to Ukraine. You're seeing that the new spending bill that would allow money to be sent to Ukraine again is hung up in Congress at the moment. That sort of isolationist tendency in the United States is always there in the background. I think that would probably become more obvious under Trump. To him, it's all about America, it's not about the rest of the world. So whether that's his approach to the border issues and his building of a wall, etc., whether it's his approach to NATO, whether it's his approach to something like the Ukraine, I think he's going to be much more isolationist. Biden is much more in the tradition of seeing America as uh, needing to provide some leadership around the world. And he's obviously done that in terms of Ukraine up to now. So the second coming of Trump will be different to the first coming of Trump. And I don't see that as a route to stability and normalcy. As I said, I think he'd be even more of a wild card. Markets are not supposed to like uncertainty. So I think it would be far too simplistic to say that the market would be in favor of him just because it was last time. If this is a repeat of the 2020 election, I'd be personally amazed if the outcome is any different. I mean, both candidates have very polarizing personalities and people made their minds up back in 2020. And I'm not sure enough has really happened between now and then to shift public perception enough to create a different outcome. But I don't know. What I would really like to spend the final couple of minutes on is hearing your thoughts, Bill, on the current fiscal quagmire in the US. So since the infamous debt ceiling was lifted in June with the passing of the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, the amount of US government debt outstanding has risen by $2.4 trillion. That is more than the total GDP of Canada, 
Today, the US has a 6% budget deficit as a percentage of GDP, meaning that it would need to either hike taxes by 20% or cut spending by 20% just to balance its rather hefty books. With no candidate looking to campaign on a policy of austerity, how does this all end? <laughs> uh, that's an extremely good question. To add to your stats, I think I'm right in saying they're spending over a trillion dollars just paying interest on the debt. Correct, yeah. There was a famous remark made by uh, a senator uh, a few decades ago where he said that uh, a billion here and a billion there and pretty soon you're talking real money. Well, now it's a trillion here and a trillion there. And we sort of got used to this, I think, during COVID when the expenditure of trillions, whether it was in what the Federal Reserve was doing in terms of its quantitative easing program being restarted or whether it was what the government was doing in terms of their fiscal spending that particularly kicked in in 21 and 22, unambiguously has just produced some astonishing numbers, as you say. The only thing is that, you know, the United States is the world's reserve currency. The 10-year US Treasury yield is the global price setter for all assets, arguably. People are going to own treasuries. Should there be some sort of slight premium attached to the Treasury yield, given the volume of bonds that are going to be issued? Maybe, but I'm not sure that I think we can probably live with the sorts of numbers that are being bandied about, even though it doesn't feel like it's the, the most stable way to be running the finances of a country, but I suspect they can fund it. It would be very different, I think, for another country to be doing it, but they have the world's reserve currency and people will buy treasuries. So I would defer to you, James, in terms of your view, in terms of what it might mean for Where's the equilibrium rate for the 10-year bond? Is it impacted by that big supply issue? My suspicion might be that you would say over the medium term, it probably will push the yield up a bit more from what it has been. But I think I'm not sure that the sums of money are going to have an impact in the short term. Well, perhaps that should be saved for a future podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining James and I on this episode of the Why Invest podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please do like, subscribe and share it with friends and colleagues. We do hope you join us again. The information provided does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.